Welcome to the basement. It's the classic guitar rock podcast. Well, Priest and Fish. Yes, Bernice. I'm fine. I was in the bathroom. I must have dozed off. This station is now the ultimate power in the universe. I suggest we use it. Don't be too proud of this technological terror you've constructed. The ability to destroy a planet is insignificant next to the power of the Force. What's the name of the place? Uh, the name of the place is, uh, Bob's Country Bunker. Here we are. Bob's Country Bunker. Atomic batteries to power. Turbines to speed. I'd like to say something. There's no reason why you shouldn't have complete confidence in your chances to come out of this thing alive in one piece. From coast to coast, from border to border, from one end to the other, and all points in between, the Classic Guitar Rock Podcast is on. Yes! That's awesome! We crank up and break down the great guitar-driven rock of the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And you are invited to come along. We got a full tank of gas, half a pack of cigarettes, it's dark, and we're wearing sunglasses. Hit it. And now, your host, Jeremy Lunnan. Yeah, we don't know anything about that fellow there. Who is he? Where's he come from? It's time for the Classic Guitar Rock Podcast. Well, hello, and welcome to the Classic Guitar Rock Podcast. This is a special event our first time doing a live stream, and when people see us, they'll understand why, John. But here <laughs> we true. are. Here, we, here yeah. we are. So, guys, this is the first time we're using a brand new platform. This is our, our maiden voyage. So you guys are, are helping us. Uh, you're, you're our guinea pigs for this. So we're looking forward to this. John, how have you been? I've been actually kind of good. I've been listening to a lot of music. Good. Yeah. And Tell us about your weekend. That sounds like... So this weekend, we live in Spokane, and uh, my wife and I, my wife bought tickets to Imagine Dragons in Seattle, and they they played at the old Key Arena, which has been rebranded as the Climate Pledge Arena. Very nice venue, very clean, very modern venue. And uh, we got seats kind of towards the, like the, like the back, towards the, probably on the left-hand side of the stage. It's kind of like our, our, we usually like to sit there. Just because you can get a better view of all the the stuff, and uh, so Dan Reynolds was came out and he had um, like a giant runway down the middle of the of the arena plus wings and stuff, and the entire concert he was running around, literally doing like laps. So he was high fiving people everywhere. He was giving shout outs to everybody, but he um, they played their big hits and. Uh, when you're in a big venue like that, they use really big woofers. I mean, like they're like 18s or whatever. And it literally like you can feel it in your spine how how big these <laughs> bass notes are. And it's like you have these lights going, you have the light and you have people around you. It felt it felt natural to be there, but also strange because COVID, you know, this, this is like the right. first indoor concert we've, we've been to. We went to uh, Jimmy Eat World last year in Spokane when they played out an outdoor venue. And this was completely different. You're you're sitting next to people that are abject strangers to you. You're which we used uh, to do. Yeah, we used to do that. Yes, yes you used to do. <laughs> but 
what, what would they call that on the, oh, before the olden days or something like that? Yes. <laughs> they played just a lot of hits. It was really fabulous to see. And he had lots of words of encouragement like this. Um, I think part of his audience is um, basically LGBT, that kind of, mm-hmm. you know, that, that group. So he basically said like, you're whatever you are, whatever you think you're going to be accepted with this group here. And it was really kind of a nice way to, you know, kind of warm everybody and bring everybody in, but it was a fantastic concert. I would go see it again. They sold out once. And I think because they sold it so quickly, they did two days at the, um, at that arena. So a, a couple things here. First of all, I have said this on our Twitter if you're not one of the 8,400 plus Twitter followers of the Classic Guitar Act podcast, now's your chance. Uh, but I, I post this what, periodically. What's, what's, what's our handle, though? What do you mean? Our, oh, it's uh, Classic Guitar at. At, or at Classic Guitar R1. There you go. I think I think that's it. So, Or just look up Classic Guitar Rock and you'll find us somehow. But I post this periodically. Uh, where I say we don't. This is not a podcast about politics. About we we love you all. We wherever you are, whatever your thoughts are, what we we just love you all. And so I would I would echo that message of Imagine Dragons. And my kids love Imagine Dragons. I didn't realize how many Imagine Dragon songs I actually knew till I was listening to my son Adam play Imagine Dragons the other day. I know lots of those songs. And so, so for an, here's my next question for an old curmudgeon classic rock fart like myself, <laughs> would I have enjoyed Imagine Dragons? I think anyone that listens to car radio or, or hear any music would enjoy it just because it was done incredibly professionally. Mm-hmm. You got your money's worth in terms of a show. Sometimes you go to shows and you feel like you're not connected with the performers because you're far away or the big thing for me is, is when bands aren't playing live, they're playing to a, a track, a click track or whatever they're playing to. And you, you have this kind of disconnect, like you're watching something, but it's not reality. So I really enjoyed that with these guys because everything came live from there. It was, it was awesome. They, they, every song was just amazing. And it's one of those things where like, sometimes you go to concerts and you go, they had really two good songs, but I'm going to go see them anyway because all my friends are going to go. Yeah, This was yeah. not like that. It's like every song you knew. It's kind of like almost like a church feeling for me a little bit when you go to right. a concert and you know the words and you're singing along and everyone else knows the words too. It's like right. it feels like a, a really a communion of abject strangers, which is it's it's, it's kind of it's, kind of like kind of like when you go see Kiss, John. Yes. Kiss. So, hey. <laughs> Comment Golden Rage of TV. John, Golden Rage of TV is a, a, a friend of mine from Twitter. I haven't even talked to John about this. Thanks for the comment. He says, Love the podcast, guys. Looking forward to maybe joining you guys one of the days. Oh. Many he this guy played with Ronnie Montrose. Whoa. And he has an incredible YouTube channel that's about the golden age of TV. So all the TV reruns that that we grew up with he talks about that but then he does these awesome rock guitar covers of classic theme songs and so we're we're gonna have this guy on our podcast very soon so thank you very much yeah and then we got another comment here i want to post this up here john 
Are you getting tickets to Greta Van Fleet? They're coming to the arena in September. I have Van Halen one. Why would I need to go see him? <laughs> well, so here's no. the thing. I love Led Zeppelin, obviously. And yeah. so Greta Van Fleet gets a little heat because of that. But I like them. The first album is really good. The second album's really good. I, I enjoy it. And and Zach, if John doesn't go, I'll probably go see Greta Van Fleet. Uh, Zach, are you going to buy me some tickets? You're going to score me some tickets, some stubs? He might. So what I know about Greta Van Fleet is they're super talented. And they're like three brothers that play. Mm-hmm. And one thing I, I read in a guitar magazine where they sometimes guitar magazines get really heavy on, on, on the stuff, not necessarily the music, but the stuff, like what are they mm-hmm. playing through what instruments they're using. And these guys researched uh, Led Zeppelin and bought all the same instrumentation they did. They bought the same basses, they bought the same drum sets, the same cymbals, the same drum heads, you know, everything to sound like Led Zeppelin. Are they a cover band? Are they inspired by them? Obviously, I'd like a good show. So if they put on a good show, I I might go. Yeah, I I think it's fun, personally. And and to me, they kind of remind me of the Black Crows. And what I mean by that is the Black Crows became so much about the fashion and the way they looked and the whole image thing that they kind of overshadowed the music. Their first couple albums were really good, but they got to where they just like believe their own press a little too much. So I'm hoping that uh, Greta Van Fleet doesn't go down the same road, but I do like what I've heard. The albums I've heard of there. So they're fun. I like them. I think they sound, sound great. I, I totally go see them. I totally go see them. Okay. So John, let me, let me kind of set the table here and talk about what we're what we're going to do tonight. We're going to talk about a Judas Priest album. This is a polarizing Priest album. It's one of these albums that people seem to love it or hate it. We're going to talk about that. But we got a few important things that we want to get to first. And hang on. I'm going to, I'm going to share Zach. Zach's responding to you. Their new album is a good branch off of that Zeppelin cover band vein, and it's much more unique. Now, another thing that I wanted to talk about, Journey is touring, and a good friend of of mine and of John's is in Hershey, Pennsylvania. He used to play in a band with John and I. He's a bass player extraordinaire, musical guy, keyboard player, singer, he does it all. So we're bringing on, on stage, on the really big shoe, it's Dave Barnes. We're spanning the globe. Dave is here from Hershey, Pennsylvania. He stayed up past his bedtime to join us to tell us about the Journey concert that I think you said was last Friday. Tell us about it. Well, uh, so... As you probably heard, Journey's back on the road again. They've, they've taken a couple-year hiatus, but uh, they're back on the road. Uh, here in Hershey, they paired up with Toto. Toto was the opening band. Uh, depending on where they go, they're having different uh, – I've seen a couple different bands be their opening band, but here they had Toto, which for me, I, I actually prefer the, mu- the musicianship of Toto actually more than journey. So for me, it was great. Yeah. Journey was solid. I think Arnell, Arnell's just this little 
powder keg of energy running around the stage, bouncing around, you know, keeping the crowd entertained. Uh, he does a pretty good job. I think his vocals are are solid for the most part. There, you know, there's a couple spots that when you sing a set list of 20 songs, 19, 20 songs, which that's what they came with. Let me say it this way. I have a lot of respect for Arnell, but I have more respect now after seeing that, uh, that concert for Steve Perry than I did prior because it takes three guys on stage to pull off what Steve Perry could do all by himself. And every single one of them is so incredibly talented, but Journey was very, very solid. Here's the thing about Journey that that and I get this. It's not just Journey, but it's with lots of bands, right? Where you get a lot of people who say, "Well, if Steve Perry's not there, it's just not Journey," you know. Or take take your pick. People say it's not all the original members. It's not, you know. I saw Journey on Frontiers. So what was that? Eighty three. I saw Journey on the Frontiers tour. I saw them in 2016 with Arnell. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that Arnell's better than Steve Perry, but I will say I enjoyed the show better in 2016 than I did in 1983. I'll just throw that out there. I saw him in 86 when they went to Boise, Idaho with the outfield. Yes, I saw that too in Salt Lake City. That was, yeah. that was an amazing show. And I would go just the inverse. I would say Steve Perry. I was more impressed with Steve Perry on that tour than I was now, again. I'm not taking anything away from Arnell. I think he did a solid job. He did have to take a break, uh, and luckily for them, they've got Dean Castronova that uh, carried one of the songs. He's the he's the drummer right now that has taken over. They also have Jason Derlatka on keys, and I think he does a solid job. They're giving him in in here in Hershey. He, he had one song, but I've seen, depending on where they're hitting, he gets two, three songs uh, per set. So I think they might be using those guys to be able to give Arnell a little bit of a break because it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. And one thing about Arnell, in fact, in the documentary about Arnell, you got to go find it. I can't remember what it's called, but there's a whole documentary about how Neil found him and the whole story. Physically, Arnell's way more active, runs around a lot more and stuff. Yes. That contributes to that probably makes it a little tougher for him to hang in there. Andy says he's referring to Toto here that it's basically Luke's band now. Totally. Steve Lukather completely drives the band. And you know what? I was going to say the same thing about Journey. It's really become Neil's band now. And to the point, and I love Neil, don't get me wrong. Neil and Jonathan, it's their band, right? But, But Neil, and I'm a guitar player. I love guitar playing. I love guitar solos, but it's, I all, I, I almost kind of felt sorry for the other guys. Cause I'm like, wow, Neil's playing another five minute guitar. solo." <laughs> you know, uh, I, I will tell you, I have never heard so many journey songs with a five minute solo in the middle, in the middle. Oh, yeah. He just yeah. stretches them all he, out. He jumps and he does a great job. He does a great yeah. job. I don't think he's lost anything at all. He just, he loves to shred. He loves to show it. He's right up front. And any chance he gets, he just has them play and just keep looping while he's shredding. So yeah, I think that part of it, and, and John, you, I heard you uh, talking a little bit about how loud it was. You could feel it. Toto was very good. 
But once Journey came out, it was so loud. Yeah. Uh, you felt all the songs, you're, you're rumbling the whole night. Um, and I got home, went to bed, and my ears are still ringing, trying to go to sleep. What's that noise? It's my ears yeah. ringing. Yeah, they're just, just very loud. Uh, I just wanted to read Pat's comment. He says, the pre-Perry journey. So he saw the pre-Perry journey oh. in a small auditorium. I talked about this a few episodes ago. Guys, go back and listen to the pre-Perry stuff. It was, you know, Neil, it was Ross, uh, I think Ainsley Dunbar on drums and Greg Raleigh sang and played keys. It's it's progressive rock and it's absolutely phenomenal, but it's like a completely different band than when, you know, Steve came in, it became a different band. But the old stuff is excellent. That's a that's a great point. Go ahead, John. I interrupted you, sir. So when I was a kid, my parents lived in Texas and my my parents took us down to Galveston and basically when I was seven years old, my parents let me just wander the beach for hours. It must've been like six hours, but you had this feeling like when you're sitting in the restaurant that you're still being pummeled by these waves or just, <laughs> and, and when you're in a concert where these, these big amps are driving these big, big speakers, you get this feeling of like, you, you, when you leave the concert, you feel like there's like waves of pressure still yeah. like resonating within you. It's kind of cool. Yeah. So, and this is not an exaggeration. I saw the ill-fated Van Halen reunion tour in 2004 there with Sammy came back. This oh. was, they came back and they did the one tour. This was the last tour that had Sammy and, and so this uh, was after Gary Sharon, right? Oh yeah. This was after Sharon. They came back together for 2004 they did this terrible tour where Eddie was falling apart and was in the height of his alcoholism. And it was bad. And I'm not exaggerating. It was so loud. It made me want to poop my pants. I mean, seriously, it like shook my insides. I'm serious. And it was so loud. I couldn't hear it. Yeah. So loud that it was just this wall massive wall of noise that you could not decipher notes and it was it was a terrible it was bad it was bad which was really sad because i'd seen them twice before and it was awesome but i will say journey wasn't that loud they were they were i think they were just that that right on that edge of of being there let me say this though a little plug about toto yes steve luther's there and he's still he's still pretty good I would say Steve has lost a little bit in the vocal on on his vocal. He's getting up there a little bit. His vocals are still solid, but it's uh, when Joe Williams sings, you almost can't tell a difference between the recordings back in the eighties and today. His vocals are still that strong. Yeah. He Um, covers the Bobby Kimball, you know, Rosanna and all of that stuff. Yes. He does a really good job on that. He, yeah, he does. And and their rhythm section that they put together uh, behind them is, is just first rate. These guys are solid. They're tight. I was just in awe about how good the rhythm section was for Toto. Pretty impressive. Well, great. I, I wanted to share one other little blurb before we go to our break, and that is Graham Bonnet. I'm, I'm I'm actually working on having Graham Bonnet uh, join, come on the podcast. He was in Rainbow. Uh, he was in Michael Stanker Group. He was in Alcatraz. 
Uh, he has a new solo album out, and he's like 75 years old, but the guy can still sing like crazy. And I saw just today his single, The Grand Bonnet Band. He left Alcatraz, and now he's got his Grand Bonnet Band, and they released a single or a yeah single today, and I saw it, and it's really good. And I, so I'm just throwing that out there. Watch for the Grand Bonnet Band album that will be coming out. We'll be talking more about it as we come up. And Pat has one more thing here. He opened a two night two night club shows for David Lee Roth. He had Atomic Punk. Atomic Punk is a is a famous Van Halen tribute band, and so they were backing up David Lee Roth. That's awesome. It was like seeing the old authentic Van Halen. Dave put all his effort into it, and it was a great show. That's awesome. I would love to see that. When we come back, we're going to dig into an album from 1981. It was, I said it was a polarizing album, and we'll talk about that. Why was it polarizing? But it's a point of entry from Judas Priest, and that will be the topic of our conversation when we come right back. Now, no pressure, Dave. Here's what we told Dave. We said, Dave, you can stay for the whole show, but if you're going to leave, you got to leave in the commercial. It's, it's now so, or never. It's, so we're going to see if Dave's here after the commercial, then we know he made his his decision. Okay. All right. Here we go. So we'll be right back after this. The basement can be a lonely place. Hello? Hello? Is anyone in here? Yet, at the Classic Guitar Rock Podcast, the basement is all that Jeremy and John have. Their wives don't want them geeking out on classic rock in the living room. Can you blame them? But you can help. For as little as $3 a month, you can become a supporter on Patreon. Join today and end the cycle. Visit patreon.com slash classic guitar rock. They'll still be in the basement. But at least it's not your basement. Hello? Is anyone in here? When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We're not just a couple of middle-aged fat guys talking about classic rock. We're going bald, too. It's the Classic Guitar Rock Podcast. So welcome back to the Classic Guitar Rock Podcast. Dave. You stick around. I'm That's still here. Awesome. That's so great. Okay, so guys, this is a little peek behind the curtain. I'm, I'm going to be completely honest here. One of the one of the things I found compelling about having John as my partner. John will tell you, he's not a big classic rock guy. He's not. But what I think is unique about that is, is we, all of us that are, you know, more enlightened than John can help bring him along. Right. And we can expose him to the good classic rock. So I, I, I always kind of 
feel bad when I say, John, here's the album we're going to do, because I know John's probably never listened to this album, but he, but he had to do some homework. I did. I did. Okay, good. So I grew up in a Mormon home and uh, Mm -hmm. we never had any cool records like you guys. We had, (laughs) we had Charlie pride. We had Hank Williams. We had Mitch Miller. I can remember having awkward family moments where we'd sit around. So Mitch Miller was this, band leader back in the 60s and he would oh, yeah. take popular songs and put like a like an orchid jazz orchestra to him kind of with strings and stuff and inside the album cover you would have these pages like several pages of lyrics so you'd sit around as a family and dad would hand out these lyric sheets and we would sing along with mitch miller so yeah we didn't have too much acdc in my house <laughs> So that is funny. Now, okay, so I grew up in a Mormon home too, but I liked the rock. And I can remember on several occasions, my mom would pull, like, pick up a record of mine and she'd go, Are you sure you should be listening to this? <laughs> and I'm like, Yeah, mom. Um, but this album that we're going to talk about today, and Dave, I'm giving you a little homework assignment here. So, Dave, while we're talking about this, I'm going to have Dave like go online, go to Wikipedia or whatever, because I might, I might have to say, okay, I forgot this guy's name. So just look up Judas Priest on Wikipedia. I'm pretty, I'm pretty well versed in Judas Priest, but we'll see. We'll see how it goes. First of all, John, without, without getting into, into details yet, what was your overall impression of this album when you listened to it? It had a certain sound. It definitely mm-hmm. had a certain sound and feel that is unlike records we hear today. Okay. So I know you don't want me to go into detail, but overall <laughs> I felt like this was kind of like the old school way to do an album where these guys wrote the songs, they sat, they went into a studio and recorded them and mm-hmm. it was a process. It, it wasn't like their only album they were ever going to write. It felt like this was part of, one of their evolutions. And okay. I think, and I, and I kind of actually enjoyed some of the songs on it too. And, and I think when you call it an evolution, I think that's the operative word because this is a polarizing album. There are some people, some avid priest fans that do not like this album. They think this is the album that they sold out on. It's too wimpy. It's too lightweight. They were tr- trying to get too much radio friendly stuff. There are other people that think it's a really good album. So so let's just back up. We'll do just a little history on Judas Priest. And I'm not going to get way in the weeds, but for all intents and purposes, the Judas Priest that we all know and love really didn't start until Rob Halford came along. They had an original lead singer named, I think, Al Atkins was the guy's name. And, and in fact, the original Judas Priest didn't include any members of Judas Priest. It was, I believe, Al Atkins was in a band called Judas Priest. He formed another band. They just used the old band of the other name with all these new people. And then Atkins is gone. Rob Halford comes in. Rob Halford, the lead singer, was the brother of Ian Hill, who's the bassist, was the brother... What? No, I have to think about... Yeah, was the brother of Ian Hill's girlfriend okay and then ian hill and this gal wound up getting married eventually and so rob halford was ian hill's uh what is that brother-in-law okay so 
74, 73, 74, Rock and Roll. They had two albums. They had, they had Rock and Roll, which didn't do much. Sad Wings of Destiny, which has some, what we consider some classic tunes on it. Uh, the Ripper, you know, for one. So once Sad Wings came out, they actually were touring Great Britain. They were touring Europe. But they still, and this is just, we've talked about this with other bands. They still didn't make enough. They still had to work day jobs, right? So here they are. They've got albums out. They're on tour, but they still have to work day jobs. It wasn't until Goal Records was their their label, kind of a small label, didn't really support them that well. Well, after Sad Wings of Destiny, that gave them enough traction that CBS or Columbia, yeah, Columbia, CBS, gave them a deal. And so in 75, 76, I'm not getting my years right. When did Sin After Sin come out? Do you see that? They did Sin After Sin, 76, something like that. Uh, 77. 77. Sin After Sin, they, they do. Oh, here's a Toto connection for you, Dave. Do you remember who was drumming for Toto? It wasn't still Simon Phillips, was it? Or was it? Maybe Simon Phillips still is in Toto. No, he's uh, not anymore, but uh, he may have been back then. Yeah. Si- well, Simon Phillips was in Toto for quite a while, actually, and up until fairly recently. But he had spent like a 10-year stint. Well, in 1977, this Sin After Sin album, they had a studio drummer who was 18 years old named Simon Phillips. And they wanted Simon Phillips to join the band. But he opted not to. And, of course, Simon Phillips went on to play with all kinds of people. Uh, he played with Michael Shanker. He played, I'm sure there's some big bands. But, but he is a world-class drummer. He decided not to join Judas Priest. They brought in a guy named Les Binks. The reason they wanted Simon Phillips, the reason they replaced Simon Phillips after the album was made with Les Binks, is this was kind of the early days of the double bass Guys had been playing double bass drums since the late 60s, but the style, the double bass, that really was coming out in the mid-70s. Simon Phillips was really good at it. Les Binks was really good at it. And so they bring Les Binks in. Uh, Sin After Sin was a great album. Uh, Stained Class was a great album. Les Binks was on that one. And... The one after Stained Class, so this would be in Great Britain, it was called Killing Machine. In the U.S., it was called Hellbent for Leather. That was when, when you think of Judas Priest, what do you think? You think of all the leather. They're all wearing leather. That's their whole deal, right? So Hellbent for Leather comes out. That's when they kind of start wearing the leather. And the song Hellbent for Leather is the one that Halford rides the Harley out on stage. And and by then they were really starting to take off. Okay, they were really they weren't huge, but they were making a name for themselves. And we're going to come back to staying class because this is a big part of their history too. But there was a live album that came out on that Hellbent for Leather or Killing Machine tour that was very successful. Unleashed in the East, right? That's the live album. Yes. Really good album. And this is about the time. Okay, they they, they hit my radar screen about 1980. For a lot of folks, that's when they heard of Judas Priest because that's when British Steel came out. 
Okay. And that's what I was getting to. British Steel was really the album that made them an international. I mean, they were playing internationally, but they were, they became a renowned band with British Steel. Breaking the Law, Living After Midnight, you know, Metal Gods. It's a great album. It's just a really good album. It was metal, but it had like some, it was catchy, right? It was catchy. And, you know, they didn't play 12 minute songs. You know, they were all kind of short. They were all kind of up-tempo, hooky, but still heavy. And it was really good. So British Steel was a, was a massive album for them. This is Judas Priest, according to Jeremy. I think of classic Priest as the beginning up through British Steel. Okay, that's the classic Judas Priest period. And then I think what I call modern priest, when they kind of got into a more, I don't know if you want to call it speed metal, you want to, they just got heavier and faster. To me, the modern priest era starts with Screaming for Vengeance, which was 82. So we've got classic priest up through 80. We've got modern priest that starts in 82 and continues on. And then we got this one weird little album in 1981, which is the one we're going to talk about. And like I said, some people love it. Some people hate it. And I'm going to say right now, I love it. It's it, my, well, spoiler. I'll give you, I'll, I'll fire all my ammo right here. My favorite priest album is British steel. My second favorite is point of entry. And people want to fight me in the parking lot when I say that, because I'll say, Oh, there's no way you like point of entry better than screaming for vengeance or stained class. I do. I do. And a lot of it, John, is what you said. It's the evolution thing. It's not a super heavy album. It's not. And it's got a different, I think it holds up way better than screaming for vengeance. I think sonically, it sounds better than Screaming for Vengeance. Screaming for Vengeance, you hear the guitars are really, really processed. There's all kinds of cheese on their signal. And that was the case for Defenders of the Faith. Here's where I really piss people off. I don't like any priest after Defenders. Sorry. I don't like Turbo. I don't like Ram It Down. I don't like Painkiller. Sorry. I loved them. I love them up through defenders. And then I just, it, to me, it went downhill. I fast. think we should cover Ram it down. I think that would be a good one for the family. Oh, man. Well, you know what? I'm willing to do it. I'll listen to it, but uh, I'm, I have to share Pat's comment here. Priests confuse the heck out of everyone. You can, you can star them comrades, by the way, Jeremy, I use that. To me. Okay. So here's the thing though. Sorry. I'm excited about this album, John. I'm not even letting you talk. It's okay. <laughs> you have a personal connection with this album. I do. I do. This I, is a. I, I heard it about three times. Yeah. So, <laughs> so you tell me. You tell so, me what you think so about. I, it. I knew nothing about Judas Priest uh, as a kid growing up, and uh, so we, in like 1983, we moved to Central Utah, and I was a fish out of water there. It was mm-hmm. all these kids were all super Mormon kids. And uh, it was very, very interesting. And that was the first time I noticed these kids running, walking around with these black leather wristbands that had studs on them. 
and kids were walking around with gloves that had like spikes on them and they had belts that had all these studs on them. Like that doesn't seem like the traditional central Utah, you know, Western wear, you know, that's going on here. You, you either like country music or you like metal. There was nothing in between. Right. So these kids were always talking about British steel, British steel, British steel. And, and uh, I remember going to like, so Mormonism has youth dances a lot and they had like smaller ward ones and they had bigger stake ones. I remember going to stake dances and dancing to Judas priest nice. at, at stake dances <laughs> in central Utah. So yeah. I'm more from this pop background and you go to something where you're dancing like you're 13 years old, whatever. And they start blaring, like, you know, ram it down. You know, it was, it was, it was very, very, it was an interesting ju- juxtaposition. But on this, on this album, I noticed that um, the little reading I did, basically what they had done is they had made enough money off their previous seven albums so they could kind of massage the recording a little bit. So they decided to ship all of their gear to Ibiza in Spain, mm-hmm. which is kind of like a party central now. I don't know what it was back, you know, 35 years ago. But they had enough money to ship all their amps all the way, you know, to Spain. And they plugged them into a studio there. And they wanted to get that specific live sound. So if you were to compare this with a really heavily studio processed album, I think you'd be disappointed because it has that essence of liveness to it. So if you listen to Rob Halford's vocals and if you have a modern hearing like most of us do with auto-tune, his performance would definitely be auto-tuned. I mean, you can, I mean, there's parts where he's flat and where he's sharp. But it's all very emotive when he's getting there, you know. So right. you understand that this is a performance. This isn't really like, you know, they, they came down to Ibiza at a party maybe, mm-hmm. bring their own amps because they were baller enough to do it. And they decided to make an album for themselves. So right. also at the time, there was these holes in music. So you had the singer-songwriters of the 70s. Those were kind of gone. You had disco that came out. And that was everything. Disco would get middle-aged white people out to dance clubs on a Friday night (laughs) and bands that were capitalizing on that, like kiss. Right. So sorry. Oh yeah. Yeah. So, and then you had later, you had uh, eliminator from ZZ top. That's a disco record friends. That is not, (laughs) that is not a gritty um, Texas blues. But I think this was their, I think they were being influenced by the discos in Ibiza a little bit, you know, because you can you can kind of feel that there was something different about it. It didn't feel super polished. And I actually kind of like that. So Here's that was my, that was my take on it. I love I, lo- I and I agree. I think and that was one of the knocks was it was too. It was too poppy, like like people thought they were trying too hard to get the radio play. They'd gotten a taste of it. Living after midnight, breaking the law. You could dance to that. Pat mentioned a little later, you got another thing coming. You could dance to that, right? It it had a beat, right? But I talk about this a lot. You'll get sick of me saying it, John. And and I've talked about it in the context of like a, uh, what examples have I used? Like a U2 song, right? Where it's, it's very cinematic, Right where it's very a certain grandeur. There's a grandeur drama. So there is some, and part of it is 
is Halford's vocals. He can, like Dio, he could have a very dramatic, and he's got a great voice. He does. He's just got a very unique voice. But there's songs on there that are just very, Desert Plains is a good example. Desert Plains, to me, is very cinematic. It's got a grandeur. Solar Angels, again, not your typical driving heavy metal song, but very, very cinematic. And then there are just a few songs on there that I don't understand why they weren't massive hits, like uh, Breaking the Law was. Like Troubleshooter, the song Troubleshooter. I don't know if you even remember the song. Troubleshooter should be a hit. That should be up there like Living After Midnight. And for whatever reason, it isn't. It's not. The second track was called Don't Go on this album. And when I I heard that, I was like, this is not a rock beat. They're playing a cha-cha. It's syncopated. It is not. Yep. I mean, if you were to re- or, I mean, reorchestrate instead of guitars and and play it with vi- like saxophones, it's a total cha-cha. It's, yeah. it's it was interesting that you, you would think like the most gritty metal band with leather. We're playing a cha-cha tonight, guys. Yeah, and it's kind of a mid-tempo. Come on, come on, now what you say? I mean, it's it. Yeah, it's and, not. And they have. They have that riff, so it starts with drums, and then they go to, I think the bass comes in next, and then the guitars, mm-hmm. both guitars are duplicating the bass. But so they're not just, loud, crunchy guitars. No. It's kind of strained. Yeah, yeah. totally. It's, it was you a know, really interesting track to think, like, it doesn't seem like it should come from these guys. As you're talking about this, it, it makes me think back to the days when we were playing together, and and I wonder in our little small dad bod band that we had. In the <laughs> um, I wonder sense. though, each of us have that different uh, sectionality of music that we really cling to, even though we could all play in different genres. Um, we all kind of knew we got pulled in different ways. Sometimes I wonder when I hear an album like this, if someone, someone got, got their say finally to say, you know what? I've been trying to push this for a long time. On this album, I'm coming through with the cha-cha on the drums. Here we go. You know what I mean? So, I mean, because yeah. we have to experience that in a very small way, but these big bands that they're playing together every day and they're getting paid to do it, they've got to have those, you know, that same thing's going on. Yeah. They're playing in Ibiza. It's like they didn't play in London. They are not in some, like, like castle in the Irish hills or Scottish hills, like other bands do, they go right. to a place to party. Well, I mean, and you can hear British, that on the album, you know. British Steel was recorded in an old English castle, basically that belonged to John Lennon. That's where they recorded it in an old, damp English mansion. And it's just interesting. British Steel, super, super successful. Point of entry, not so successful. And then it was followed up with their uh, massive, their most popular album, which was Screaming for Vengeance. So sandwiched in between their two biggest albums is this odd little gem, Point of Entry. And and I meant to have it with me. Two different album covers. I don't know if you guys noticed this in the research. I didn't even know there was the second album cover until 10 years ago. The, the album cover, it's a weird album cover. It's like, a roll of computer paper on the floor of the desert drifting off into the horizon. It's you can actually see the perforated. Remember printer paper, John, 
that yes. came in the box and it was <laughs> it's like a roll of that paper going off into the distance and then on the back of the box there's a bunch of cardboard boxes it's like this is not very heavy metal you know we just went from an album that has a razor blade and it's black you know and the one before that was called killing machine and there's a this guy with sunglasses with reflections of blood in the glasses and then all of a sudden we got computer paper rolling across the desert no wonder people thought it was weird because it is it's weird. weird I want to bring up the topic of selling out. I think Dave, you could totally join us in on this. So, no, I'm not saying you've sold out yet. You you may, I don't know. But there's this this thing is like if a band isn't well known, they have credibility. Once they become well known, they have no longer credibility. Totally, and it, it, go, it goes for rap and other artists too, or other genres too. But what do you think about the? I mean. I've seen these guys that 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 have sold out and they're living in mansions and they're 70 years old and they've been living in a mansion for 35 years. And they've yeah. got nice cars and they never have to worry about a meal and they can do whatever they want. I would kind of really enjoy selling out if I could do that. Me too. And what, I think your any, band, any band would. Yes. Dave? What's your take, what's, Dave? I don't know that I would turn that down. Now, I'm, I'm just the personality type that I'd always have something I'm working on, but... Uh, I wouldn't mind working on it in the basement of a mansion versus my wife's crafting room. (laughs) (laughs) To your point, John, that's exactly right. Bands are cool until they get successful. And once they get successful, a lot of their fan base turns on them. Right. And and I don't know. True to their roots. And it's like, well, absolutely. This is the album we've wanted to make. Right. So that's always been funny. And, Pat calls it the curse of the power ballad. And that is true. But don't that you is, see that not just uh, in, in music in any way, I think people get in any way they can and they get hooked maybe with a label or, or um, a manager that is going to promote a certain thing and push them in a certain direction to get them to that fame. And then once they get there, they say, you know what, this, I like being famous, but this isn't what I want to do. I want to. I want to move more stylistically into an area that that I like. And so I think you see that a lot. Not to throw, you know, a perfect pop example of that is like a Taylor Swift. She comes in on the country swing there and and gets in, and then all of a sudden, look where she's at. So you, see, I think you see that a lot in in music. One thing I wanted to, even though it's not really related to this album. There are a couple historic things about priests that are really fascinating that I think a lot of people aren't aware of. The first thing is the movie Rockstar. Wasn't that Danny Wahlberg? Mark Danny Wahlberg, wasn't it? Or Mark Wahlberg. Marky Mark, Rock, yeah. Rockstar. Rock With was Jennifer orig- Aniston? Yes, that's the one. That was originally about Tim Ripper Owens, the guy that replaced... Rob Halford. Rob Halford left Priest in like the early 90s and they found Ripper Owens playing in a Judas Priest tribute band in Indianapolis or someplace and they brought him in and so now all of a sudden he's the lead singer of his favorite band. That was the whole premise of the movie and the original movie was going to be Tim Ripper Owens' story. 
But somewhere along the line, there was a clash between Judas Priest and their label and the movie studio to where Judas Priest pulled out. They were no longer involved. And so then they just had to make it a generic movie about a guy that kind of followed the same story. But the original movie was going to be about Ripper Owens taking over Halford's role. David says Rob Halford is or was the Frank Sinatra of heavy metal. We're talking vocal control and Halford's control and range is out of this world. I, I agree 100%. And, and you don't hear it on the hits, but you go into some of these back catalog songs where he's singing very mellow part. It's totally Frank Sinatra. Totally. Yeah. Very talented guy. So there's that little tidbit about rock star. And then, you know, the whole early 90s, Halford came out, right? He came, he left the band. He came out, which like uh, Newsflash, Rob, no one was surprised. Mm-hmm. And, and, I didn't know and, he came out. I thought he'd been out. Yeah. Yeah. And no. And well, and the bigger thing is no one cared. Right. You know. And and that just shows what it was like when he was growing up, when obviously that was something that you kept private. But I don't think he's his legacy has suffered at all. But he started a band called Fight. Now, this is a f- interesting little tidbit. There was a his guitarist in the band Fight was a guy named Russ Parrish. Does anyone recognize who Russ Parrish is? He's Satchel in um Still yeah, Still so Satchel was Halford's guitar player, and he's a phenomenal guitar player. Phenomenal player. He's a, now he's, he's a, in Steel Panther, and they're a, a parody band. They're hilarious, but th- just that's a funny little connection here. But but one of the biggest things, t- two scandals really in Judas Priest's history. One, and it was a tragedy in 1990. Two boys in Mesa or Phoenix, in that area, they committed suicide. And they'd been listening to Stained Class. The song is Better By You, Better By Me, which was a cover, by the way. That was an old Spooky Tooth song. So not even a song that Judas Priest wrote, but the parents of these two boys, one was 20, one was 18, the parents of of these boys sued Judas Priest because they thought that song made them commit suicide. Now, first of all, it's a tragedy. Okay, it's tra- I don't want to make light of a tragedy. And th- there were several of those cases back then. Too. There, there were. It wasn't the only Ozzy. I think there was one thing. There, was Ozzy. there suicide been solution. I think was lots of cases about that. What was interesting about the Judas Priest one is they said it was actually backmasking. There was a message on there that said. Just do it. So I, I, I want oh, yeah. think think about the logic here, though. So, so these parents, I guess, thought that that in 1978, Judas Priest backmasked "Just Do It" on the song to tell these boys in 1990 to take their own. I don't I don't understand it. It was a tragedy all over around, and and the backmasking thing, by the way, because. And you can see footage of Halford testifying, and he's like, we didn't intentionally backmask anything. And when they had the sound expert actually play it back, that part that sounded like just do it 
was a combination of words backwards and then the percussion sound of a drum or something being played backwards. It wasn't even a spoken part, but it kind of sounded like the words just do it. And so these people tried to sue priests for the deaths of their son. Priests, you know, won, obviously, but it was a tremendous, took a tremendous toll on Halford and the band because first of all, they didn't like, uh, thinking that people thought they were responsible for the death of, of people and that sort of things. And, and just being dragged through the press and being called devil worshipers and all, all the stuff that came with that, that led to Halford's growing addiction problems and things too, that he eventually had to go to rehab for John. I think at least from what I remember of being a kid in the eighties, there was an undercurrent of like, you know, people would talk about there's Satanists out there. You're, you're, you're surrounded by Satanists. You, people you don't even know are going to be sacrificing cats and stuff in your backyard. Mm-hmm. You know, if you listen to these songs, it's it's Motley Crue was like people would dissect their videos about all the devilry that's in it and stuff like that. Yeah. I think it was a little bit of a zeitgeist at the time, meaning that mm-hmm. there was people willing to believe things without, you know, without any proof. They were really, they wanted to kind of reinforce their own beliefs. So. That's my opinion. I think it was just kind of indicative of the times. I can remember in high school, I graduated high school in 1985. And I remember in that period, there was a whole cottage industry of people talking about Dungeons and Dragons, God of Rock. Yeah. uh, uh, And and it's funny because I grew up in a very conservative religious family. I listened to heavy metal. I was still a good kid, right? See, that's why that's why I steered more towards Duran Duran because then you, know, <laughs> you, you, you wanted to like get a crew together and go get spices in India and go on a, <laughs> work a one runway with some models. You know. And, and then, club, you know the other scandal, and I don't know if you took the time to look into this. So Dave Holland was their drummer that came in on uh, British Steel. And Dave Holland's the longest drummer Priest had. He was with him for like five or six records. So he's on British Steel. He's on uh, Point of Entry, Screaming for Vengeance, you know, clear up through like 1990. He was in a band way back when we always, I always try and tie in this rock and roll family tree, right? He was in a band called Trapeze with Glenn Hughes. And Glenn Hughes is a name you hear over and over because he was in about every band, right? He was in Deep Purple. He was in Black Sabbath. He's played was he in Scorpions Horn. too. I don't think he, he was never in Scorpions. Okay. Never in Scorpions, but he's played with so many people. Uh, phenomenal talent. He was addicted for fought addiction for so long. He's cleaned up his act about twenty years ago and and is doing great. But anyways. He was in this band. Dave Holland was in the band with Glenn Hughes and Trapeze, late 60s, early 70s. And Dave Holland's a great drummer. Now, here's what happened. He left Judas Priest in the early 90s. Their current drummer, Scott Travis, who's been with them. Well, he's been their longest drummer because he's been with them since like 92. Uh, Scott Travis came in. Dave Holland was convicted of child molestation or sexual assault with a minor uh, a, a young man who had mental disabilities that he had been giving drum lessons to. And so that was like, Oh, that's terrible. He did. He, he served time. 
He got out, died of cancer a few years ago. He kind of, he went to Spain and lived out the last few years, died of cancer. And here's, and I'm not, I'm not falling on either side, but one thing that I've read after the fact is that as some folks have gone back and looked at it, they kind of feel like Dave was innocent of these things. And that because this young man had some mental disabilities, his attorneys and everyone really took advantage of that and played that up. And so it's a tragedy all the way around, right? And 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 if he was in fact innocent, it's a tragedy that he died. People thinking he was a pedophile. Uh, if he wasn't, you know, if it's it was just sad. It was just a sad, a sad story all the way through. And uh, that's why Dave Holland is never really mentioned in any of the history of, of oh. Judas Priest. But but sad. I mean, just a sad story all the way around. He was always kind of interesting because he never looked like a, he belonged in a heavy metal band. You know, he kind of had the short hair and it was kind of parted in the middle. And, you know, he kind of looked 1979, you know, but he was a good drummer. He's a good drummer. So that was just another sad little part of the Judas Priest story. Laura mentions ACDC, and this is when we were talking back about the uh, the suicide uh, case for Judas Priest. Didn't ACDC have something like that happen as well? I'm not sure. That could be. They had a concert in Salt Lake City when I was a kid. I didn't go to it. They had a crush in the audience, and I believe four members of the audience were killed in it. Wow. Mm. That happened in Salt Lake City, I believe. I'll have to fact check that. But that wow. I think that put a major dent in what they were doing at the time. They were moving into the 90s or late 80s in the 90s, and that kind of derailed them. So, <laughs> Right. Well, guys, I uh, want to thank Dave for joining us. And Dave, thank you for staying up late, sticking around. Yeah. So, Dave, your I'm homework good. assignment now is to go listen to Point of Entry. Not, not a problem. You do it. It's a, it's a good album. In fact, for someone who's not really into metal, I think it's a great album. To John's point, it's quite varied in terms of, of music, but but I really love it. And uh, we want to thank everyone for joining us tonight. Pat, thank you for joining us. We'll be in touch with Pat. Pat's going to be a guest coming up. He's got some great stories he's going to share with us. We want to especially thank our Patreon contributors. Uh, Laura's on here, and she's one of our contributors. So thank you very much. And if you are able to support the podcast uh, with $3 a month, as little as $3 a month, that would be great. If not, that's great too. We appreciate you checking out the podcast. This is new for us doing it streaming. So we'll, we'll see if this is something we want to, I had fun doing it. So if you have any comments, please go to our website and uh, fill out one of those forms and let us know what you think of what we're doing. Absolutely. Thank you all for your comments. Thank you for joining us. And we will see you on the next episode of the Classic Guitar Podcast. Thanks so much. See you guys. Bye, everyone. Thanks for listening to the Classic Guitar Rock Podcast. Oh, sweetie. Please like, subscribe, and share. You can email us at classicguitarrock at mail.com. We're not ordinary people. <laughs> We're morons. We'll see you for the next episode of the Classic Guitar Rock Podcast.